Thank you. Well, good morning. Everybody doing all right today? You're a little slow on that this morning. I just want you to know. Good morning. morning. Oh, listen to that. That's so much better. So much better. Well, open your Bibles, please, to Colossians chapter 3. And as you're doing that, I just want to tell you something, an interesting little factoid here for you. Uh, 477 years ago today, William Tyndale, you ever heard that name? He, uh, the reason you have your Bible to hold your hands, he's one of the reasons why you have it in your own language. Because he was a guy who, who spent his life uh, making sure that the common language of man, they'd have the Word of God in their own tongue. And 477 years ago today, uh, he was strangled to death for it. You know? Sounds kind of bad, I suppose, but he's with his Lord, and uh, he served him well. Colossians chapter 3. Uh, last week we began our section here in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 17, and we're really talking about uh, uh, the put-offs and put-ons uh, of, of life as, as a Christian, as a believer. They're really the sanctification process. Uh, we're talking about dressing the part, that is that we are to live a certain way. We are to put off certain things, right? Which we talked about last time. We talked about uh, the old lifestyle that is to be mortified, killed off, destroyed, murdered, however you want to say it. Consider yourself dead, our text says. Because, as we saw last time, that old lifestyle violates the holiness of God. Because we have been transformed, we should continue this process of, of seeing these things that die off in our life, Right? Uh, today we turn uh, to the second really component of dressing the part, and that is that we are to not only get rid of those grave clothes, those things that uh, really shouldn't be seen in the Christian's wardrobe, uh, but we should put on our grace clothes, and that's really where we're focusing today. We're not to remain, remain stripped of our old self only, but we're to put on certain virtues in accordance with our transformation. And you could very easily subtitle this sermon. Um, that sounded like I was the hurricane. I was like the weatherman, you know, standing out there that shouldn't be. You could subtitle this sermon, Don't Forget Your Clothes, all right? Because, you know, some people, their whole emphasis in the Christian life is, what do I got to get rid of? What are the list of things I'm not supposed to do? What are the, the clothes that I ought to get rid of? And that's an important part of it for sure, those, those attributes of the old man that we need to kill off as we saw last time. But that's not the end of the story, okay? Uh, if you only remove bad vices from your life and do not replace those with godly virtues, there is almost a guarantee that you will return to those things, all right? It's kind of like the old uh, story of the... the uh, the, the demon-possessed house. Do you remember that when Jesus told that? And, and in that he says, if you just get rid of it and clean the house and sweep it up real good and don't do anything more than that, guess what? They're going to come back and bring seven more friends. You know, what we need to do is not only put off bad vices, but put on godly attributes and virtues, okay? So let's read our passage. I'm going to pick up in verse 12, which is what we're looking at today, 12 through 17. And so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, 
and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now, Paul begins his appeal here. And by the way, I want you to think about this because so much of the Christian walk is the emphasis is on the negative. You know what I mean? It seems like we, we almost always, which is the part we looked at last time. You know, what do you not do? And how much different does the church look to a watching world if they include this part of things, right? The list of things that we are to be like. I mean, if you talk about a church that has compassion and kindness and peace and the love and the perfect bond of unity and all those kind of things, how much more attractive is that as we live our life not only with put-offs but also with put-ons? You see what I'm saying? Because the world around us is looking for, for meaning in life. They're looking for truth. They're looking for something, for lack of a better term, that is pragmatic and that works. And the reality is the gospel of Jesus Christ, get this now, works. It transforms man. And transformation is not merely a change to a blank slate. In other words, everything's erased. But it is changed to a newness of life. All right, so we're, we're talking about th this new life and what it looks like. And Paul makes an appeal here to dress the part. And he's basing that on three distinguishing marks of Christians. And that's the first thing you see there. And you have that on your outline. And it's interesting because the reality that this is portraying to us is that there is more to Christianity than just a, a God who is distant or, or, or a set of actions that you do, but it is much more than that. It is a relationship, right? There is God, the creator of the universe, God, the, the one who, who, who made it all and who has outlined this plan, also desires not for you just to follow his plan, but to have a deep and abiding relationship with you. And this was the way it was all through history, right? It's the way it was in the Garden of Eden. It's the way it was with Israel. In fact, it's interesting to me that the things Paul draws from here are the exact same traits that, uh, that God mentioned in his relationship to Israel. Now, there's a distinction between Israel and the church. I don't want you to miss that. But at the same time, there is not a distinction in a relationship, in a personal relationship. And to show you this, why don't you keep your finger in Colossians 3 and turn back to Deuteronomy 7. Or if you're on a phone or an iPad or something like that, you don't have to keep your finger there. It'll be all right. You can press that little button up at the top that's a bookmark. Put you a nice little ribbon there. All right, have you found it yet? I want to know if the people turning the pages got there faster than the people on the phones. I think the people on the phones might have got there faster. Okay, here we go. Ready? For you are a holy people. Okay, check that word out. Holy you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. There's a second one there, okay? He has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other peoples, but for you were the fewest of the peoples, but the Lord loved you, okay? So you got three components here. And by the way, they're the same thing that we see as we look at verse uh, 12 here. And so as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, okay? Chosen, holy, and beloved. Those are the three traits of this relationship, okay, that are, that are quite um, amazing when you really think about them. 
The first one, chosen of God. That's a staggering thought. I don't know how, how you feel about that, but to me, that's a staggering idea. Do you realize this as a Christian, that you have been, that the God of all creation has set his affections upon you and he had chose you, okay? The Bible's clear on that. God chose you, not vice versa. He chose you before the foundations of the earth. It's him that draws us to himself. And again, it's not by works, right? If it was by works, it'd be us kind of doing the thing, but it's by grace, are you tracking with me on this? It's really important because if you think your relationship with Christ is based upon your merits and what you did, you'll have a whole, number one, it's a problem with the, the, the gospel to start off with. But past that, you're going to have a whole lot of trouble down the road because every time you sin, every time you struggle, uh, you're going to look at yourself and say, did I lose this? What happened? Am I there? Have I arrived? You know, all this kind of stuff. But when it's God who initiated, God who chose you, and God who takes you into his loving arms and sets you apart and makes you holy and beloved, this is a whole different animal because he didn't choose you. Just like with Israel, he didn't look around at the nations and go, let me find the biggest, strongest, awesomest nation on earth, right? What did he do? He picked Israel. He doesn't tell us exactly why he picked Israel. But he tells us why he didn't pick Israel, why he, what, he, what the basis was he didn't pick Israel. And that was, he said, you weren't the biggest. You weren't the best. You, in fact, you were the fewest. I chose you because I'm sovereign and that's what I do. And I chose you, okay? So it starts off, you're chosen of God. Now let that sink in a little bit here. And if you, if you ever go to a planetarium or you consider science and all those kind of things, it's an amazing thought to think about the fact that the God who put all of this detail and magnitude into, into, the, into the universe and all the vastness of that went down to a certain thing and said, you know what? I choose you, David Cummings. I choose you, right? That's absolutely staggering. He chose us. We're chosen of God, verse 12. We're also holy. That's the idea of being set apart, uh, separated for a special use. In other words, he chose you to use you. He chose you as his own, and then as his own, you are an ambassador of Christ. These are amazing things, and each one of them you could spend a sermon on. Third one is we're beloved. So our relationship is he chose us. He, 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 ta he takes us and makes us holy and sets us aside for a special use. And then he's, he's set his love upon us. I love beloved here because uh, what it is, it's a verb, okay? And it's in the perfect tense in the Greek. And what that's stressing is the permanence of the love of God, that, the love of the God that chose us and forgave us. And if you can ponder just a little bit the fact that God loves you, it really changes your whole outlook, doesn't it, on the relationship. He's not like choosing you to, you know, some people are like this. Well, I remember a guy when I went into the ministry um, a guy I worked with in Houston, he says to me, he says, you know, I've always kind of felt the same way. He'd grown up a preacher's kid, all this kind of stuff. And he says, you know, but I was afraid if I turned my life, if I got saved, if I turned my life over to God, I'd know that he would send me to deepest, darkest Africa, or I'd have to do the kind of stuff you're doing. It's like, wait a minute, you know, it's a whole different perspective. And it's a God who, yeah, he chose me, but now he's got this terrible task for me to carry out, Right. So much more than that. He loves us, okay? How does, that, how does that react? How does that change the way you live your life? I mean, you think about it. If an unbeliever, when an unbeliever sins, he, he violates the law of his creator and judge. But when we as believers sin, we're, 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 it's the child breaking the heart of the father in this relationship. It's a whole different way of looking at it. So we have been chosen of God. And, and Paul's saying that we've been chosen, we've been beloved, we've been set apart. And as such, 
We need to not only put off aspects of our lives that aren't in accordance with who we are in Christ, but we are also to put on certain things which are in accordance with our status as a new creation. By the way, this isn't new. It's, some, it's something you see all throughout the Word of God. Uh, all through the New Testament, Paul many times goes back to this put off, put on, but it's not just the New Testament. It's even in the Old Testament. You can go back, and this is your homework for this afternoon, go back to Zechariah 3. And in Zechariah 3, you see kind of the same illustration of the same thing. Let's just, well, let's just turn there real quick. I'll do your homework for you. Zechariah 3, verse 1. Amazing little book, Zechariah. It's quite a bit of uh, end times kind of stuff and things like that. But Zechariah 3.1, Then he ch- showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. That's the pre-incarnate Christ, okay? And Satan was standing at the right hand to accuse him. That's what Satan does. Verse 2, And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has, cho- who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire. In other words, I've redeemed him. Now Joshua was clothed with filthy uh, filthy garments and was standing before the angel. And he spoke and he said to those who were standing before him, saying, remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said to them, see, I've taken away your iniquity and I will clothe you with festal robes. Then he said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head. By the way, that's a, a reference there. The, word, the Hebrew word there references to the priestly uh, headdress. Um, by the way, it had a little gold plate on it said, holy to the Lord, set apart to the Lord. Uh, so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him in, with garments while the angel Lord was standing by. So there, there is this change that is to be taken place. There is this, this aspect where, yeah, we are, are mired in our, our filth and our sin and all that kind of stuff, but he pulls that away and he redeems us. We're no longer a slave to sin, but now we're a slave to righteousness and we walk in newness of life and even our, our, our appearance, as it were, in the eyes of the Lord has changed. So we, we lay aside the filthy garments, right? And, and we looked at that last time. Immor, immorta, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, lying, all that kind of stuff that we looked at last time. But we don't stop there. We don't only take off the grave clothes, but now we got to get dressed properly and put on our grace clothes. And so Paul says, literally put on, or literally clothe yourselves, put on to wear, because you are chosen, holy, and beloved. And then what he does, he says, because of who you are, you need to live a certain way. And he starts to detail what that Christian wardrobe looks like. And that's what we're going to examine right now. So how do we dress the part? Look at it. And you see the description of the Christian wardrobe in verses 12 through 17. And he details some of the traits that we should uh, have and have in growing amounts. The first one he says there, as you look back at, at verse 12, he says, put on a heart of compassion. Literally there, if you were to translate it from the Greek, literally it says, put on bowels of mercy. <laughs> it's not a very beautiful way of saying it, but bowels were the seed of the emotion, the Hebrew thought, right? We've talked about that before, I think. And just, you know, how you get a knot in your stomach or you've got that girl you're going to propose to, you have that relationship with, or it's really just affects you at the, at the bowel level, so to speak. Uh, nervous or anxious in love, you feel it where? Where? Your stomach and your lower abdomen, okay? Not your heart necessarily, although sometimes your pulse might increase, things like that. But he says, put on these things of of compassion, and it's plural there, uh, acts of compassion. 
And what is compassion? Compassion is, is pity and tenderness towards those who are suffering, to those who are miserable. By the way, this is absolutely the opposite. This, this, this kind of compassionate lifestyle is just the opposite of the false teachers that Paul's uh, teach, teaching against right here, right? Because what were they doing? Were they looking at the people as they struggle through life and, and trying to help them, or were they putting more and more burdens upon them like the Pharisees? They were putting on more burdens. No, you got to observe these Sabbaths, new moons, festivals, all that. Remember that? And this is so different from that because it's compassion. It's, I, I, I genuinely care about you. And when you're in a difficult situation, I, I want to come alongside you and help you to any extent I can. This is a compassion, folks. And all these pieces of the wardrobe reflect Christ. Okay? Christ was compassionate. So visible in his life. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, you remember he looks out at the multitudes and it says this, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. So, you know, that's the way we, we shouldn't look at the world down our nose as somebody who's lost or, or acting and behaving in ways that are in, in perfect harmony with their position as those who don't have the gospel of Jesus Christ applied to their life, we should look at them with compassion, true? We should care about them. There we were, right? And so instead of just judging them or don't you know that's stupid and all this kind of stuff, we should come alongside and try to help them and show them the compassion that Christ showed to the multitudes who were downcast and distressed and sheep without a shepherd. So the question that you want to ask right now is, do you have a heart of compassion? Are you tender to those who are suffering? Do you come alongside with genuine empathy? That's part of the Christian wardrobe. Okay? Look at letter number two, kindness. Put on a heart of compassion and kindness. Kindness is goodness or graciousness. Ellicott, the commentator, calls this a sweetness of disposition. And I love the Old Testament example. I think we've talked about it before of David who's a man after God's own heart, as he was later in his kingdom years, and he thought, is there somebody I can show kindness to? Remember Mephibosheth? Somebody from the house of Saul? Is there somebody? I mean, that was the opposite of what that guy in that position should do from a worldly perspective. He was, those guys went and tried to kill everybody from the descendant of the guy before so they wouldn't have anybody trying to take the throne away. But David had the heart of God. He's a man after God's own heart. So he thought, who can I show compassion to? Who can I show kindness to? And, his, and it was brought to his attention of this man by the name of Mephibosheth, who he brought in. He gave him an inheritance. He set him at his table and he took him into his home, into the palace. And you remember Mephibosheth's response, 2 Samuel 9, 8, when this happened, he, he, he prostrated himself and he said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me. You know, it was so obvious to him, this kindness that was being poured out, that Mephibosheth was just like, it just overwhelmed him. By the way, according to Micah, this characteristic is foundational. Remember Micah 6, 8? Remember that song? Y'all, you sing that song? You you know the song I'm talking about? He has shown you. Remember this? Oh, man, are y'all too young for that or what? Raise your hand if you remember that. I got to know. All right, good. Well, you should have joined in. You left me hanging up here. and I'm, I'm going to show you kindness, though, because I'm preaching on that right now. 
He has shown you, O man, what is good. Remember this, this is Old Testament, right? And what does the Lord require you? He names three things. What three things would you pick if you were to show what is the character of a man who follows God? It's a good exercise. The first one he picked was do justice. You might have picked that one, right? The, the last one you picked was to walk humbly before your God. You might have picked that one, but I'm pretty sure most of us wouldn't have put down the second one, and that is to love kindness. To love kindness. You know, we as believers should be marked by a kind spirit. It's not popular and it's not funny and it's not uh, attractive to our generation in some ways, but the reality is that's how we should be. And if you think about your own life, say, you know, I, say I was to make an offer to you that I would give you $10 for every act of kindness you did last week. And, but I would take $5 away for every time you were the opposite of kindness. You were mean or you weren't kind or you missed an act of kindness that you should have done. Would you be rich or poor after that week? Most of us would not fare as well as we should as those who name the name of Christ, okay? We need to have, be a people who overflow with a heart of compassion with acts of kindness towards one another. Look at the third one, humility. By the way, to the readers in Paul's day when he's writing this, this is a big negative. Humility is not a, a positive attribute to the readers in the first century. That was a negative thing. That was something you would make fun of in somebody's life. But to the Christian, this is a very, very positive thing. You remember John the Baptist? The greatest of men, right? Jesus says. What was his deal? His deal was this, John 3.30. He must increase and I must decrease. That's humility. It's humility at its best. Jesus taught us that we should be this way. You remember when he told the story of the, the Pharisee and the tax collector who went into the temple to pray, right? And the Pharisee gets up and his prayer is all about, oh, Lord, I thank you I'm not like other guys, swindlers, unjust, not like that tax collector over there. I, I fast two times a week. I tithe of everything I got. And the tax gatherer was over there on his face. He said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinful man, in a humble position. One man said, God, look at what I've done for you. And the other guy's just going, God, I don't deserve anything but your wrath. Lord, have mercy upon me. And Jesus' story was to the point. Which one of those le men left justified in the sight of the Lord? The one with the humble position, not the one who was doing all the stuff. That was Christ's example, by the way. Philippians 2, he humbled himself, became obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. I mean, Christ did not have to die on the cross, right? He did that because he loves us. He had compassion toward us. He was kind toward us. And he humbled himself so that we might have a way of escape from our sins, so that he might save us. Humility is lacking dramatically in our days. I have a, had a um, professor in seminary. His name was Dr. Roscup. Maybe some of you guys know him. Dr. Roscup lives down in Whittier. He's a great man of God. Brilliant, brilliant guy. He wrote a, a series of books on prayer. And it's like, I don't know, 5,000 pages or so on prayers of the Bible. I mean, he's not just verbose. I mean, he's just thinking about it that deep, you know what I mean? And this is a great guy. But I tell you what, when you had him for a class, it was not going to be an easy class. I mean, when you would get your papers back when I went, he was the greater too, okay? And you'd come back, it would, all the other guys' papers would come back with red all over them, not mine, of course. No, you, they'd come back looking like it just bled, okay? 
But, but he wasn't doing it in such a way that was like ugly or anything. He was really trying to help you to understand greater truths about whatever the paper was about. But this guy, he, he was a stickler, okay? He had, a, he had a, a system. He says, you know, when your papers do, your papers do. It needs to be here no matter what. It needs to be in the stack on the desk when you come in the room and put it there. If not, there were certain penalties, a letter grade one day, and then eventually you were just out of the game. And, and he was very faithful and consistent to his own rules. He didn't set it up lightly, and he was very serious about it. Well, there was a guy before my time who, uh, this was before really a lot of people were <laughs> great on computers in that generation, and uh, he was writing, he was to write a paper. He had all his study and done, he'd done all his work, and his wife was the one who typed out all his papers for him on a typewriter. She gets sick. She's taken into a hospital. This guy calls up Dr. Roscott. Dr. Roscott, my wife has been taken to the hospital. I know I've got this paper due tomorrow. I've got the work done, you know, and, and, but she can't type it for me, and I don't really know how to use that, you know. Roscott was like, uh, well, it has to be in tomorrow. And right off your bat, you're thinking, wow, that's pretty harsh, isn't it? But what Roscott did was absolutely amazing. Whittier gets in his car, drives up to Panorama Sun Valley, up near like Grace Community Church, and goes to this guy's apartment, sits down at his typewriter, and starts to type out the paper for him. Held him to the rule that he had, but was willing to humbly submit him to go do that on his behalf. How cool is that? How easy, how, what would I have done? I sure wouldn't have done that. I'm pretty sure of that, okay? I'd like to tell you I would, but I would have gone, you know what, I'll give you a day's grace of you know, what's going on, you know, we'll... But he was like, I need to be consistent in this. I want to be consistent in this. But I want to show you how important it is. And his deal was, you know, you come in on Sunday morning at 9.30 to preach, and uh, they're, not, they're sitting there waiting for something from the Word of God, and you didn't get it done. You know, you need to have it ready. It's, it's important. And that's a lesson he was trying to teach us. But that was the kind of humility this man had. It's just the opposite, by the way, whether you look at Roscup or Christ or, or what Jesus taught about the Pharisees and the tax gatherers of John the Baptist, it's the opposite of what the false teachers were who had that false humility, remember? When we looked at that in chapter 2. So the question for us is, okay, are we humble? And it shows up in, in so many different ways. If you're dealing with anger, can I just say that the virtue that probably needs to be put in place on that one is humility? Because usually we're angry because people aren't doing something that we think they ought to be doing and we know better, right? Humility. Number four, gentleness or meekness is another translation for it. Very closely related to humility. Again, it's the opposite of arrogance and harshness. And it's, it's really the idea of having a delicate consideration of the feelings of others. It's, it's kind of described best as power under control. You know, where you have the ability to do something, to, to bring a, a, a justice or, or uh, some kind of penalty on somebody, but you choose to instead control that perceived uh, justice and come alongside somebody. 
and it's power under control. Like, you know, in the wind, there's great power. We've had these Santa Anas coming up, right? Trees are felled all the way up where I live in Santa Clarita from this stuff. The wind's pretty rough. I mean, I've seen it in Kansas in tornadoes. And I've seen it in the Gulf Coast in hurricanes. You know, wind can be tough. But you know what? Power like that under control is, is, is pretty incredible too, right? Turns a turbine. It produces uh, electricity, right? Gets inside a sail. A ship goes through the ocean across the continent or across the, the ocean. Uh, you see it, uh, power under control and things like uh, healing medicine. Uh, a lot of medicines are poison, right? If you took them in the wrong way. Chemotherapy is poison, right? But given in, in proper doses and ways, it can be the thing that brings about healing. The cobalt bomb is a very destructive device, but if you have a cobalt, cobalt bomb, B-A-L-M, that's used to eradicate cancer. Instead of being harsh, it's gentle and meek. Moses, the Bible tells about him in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. says, Moses was very meek above all the men which were on the face of the earth. By the way, the guy who wrote that, other than the Holy Spirit of God, his name was Moses. You've got to be pretty meek to write that and really be sincere, which he was, Right? Jesus Christ is described in Matthew chapter 11, verse 22. He says, I am meek and humble, right? I am gentle and humble, same word. So the question for us is, okay, how are we portraying that? Are we gentle? Or it's like, hey, I've got a right. Remember these words, right? I've got a right. Somebody did this to me. I got a right. The I got a right phrase really just doesn't apply in gentleness. I just, you just need to know that. You know, how is it that I can look at this person who has maybe rightfully or maybe in, it is correct that they have wronged me in some way. How can I come across and help them in a way that is gentle instead of harsh? That's not easy. Number five, patience. Literally, it's the idea of having a long temper. Okay, the Bible is replete with uh, illustrations from beginning to end of patience and impatience and the, 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 the greatness of patience and the folly of impatience. Uh, an example of impatience would be Abraham and Sarah, right? Remember when God says, hey, I'm going to give you a son? And, and they're like, uh, okay, let's make this happen. You know, and get Hagar involved, and she has a child, and the child is Ishmael. Remember this? They weren't waiting on the Lord. They're like, well, we've got to do this ourselves. He's apparently not doing anything. Ishmael was born, and even to this day, that's a problem, Right? When we get in the way, when we start being impatient, there's problems that come from it. Patience is what we're to have, okay? And I love that my favorite illustration of patience in the Bible is in the minor prophets in the story of Hosea. Remember this? Hosea is a prophet, right? And Hosea uh, was to have, according to God, he was going to have an adulterous wife, an unfaithful wife. Her name was Gomer. Bad enough your wife's name's Gomer, but now she's adulterous and unfaithful, right? And it's all for a picture, okay? Hosea, I hope your name's not Gomer. I feel really bad right now. <laughs> Except my apology, we'll get to forgiveness in a little bit. Hosea is symbolic of God's patience and his love for Israel. And so he does this picture, okay? And she went as far, uh, Gomer, to become a temple prostitute. How bad is that, right? For you in the premarital class, how, exciting would you be, how excited would you be about this possibility? But the Lord says to, to Hosea, he says, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. 
that may sound strange to you, but that's a temple, an idolatrous, that was a delicacy that was in feast associated with Baal worship, okay? It's not that you can't have raisins or anything, don't go there. So, so Hosea says, I went and I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver, that's the price of a slave, and a homer and a half of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days, you shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, and I will also be toward you. And so there's this picture of all these things where, like Israel, Gomer was going against God's will, but God, like Hosea, the picture, was being patient and is patient to this day. Patience is tough, right? I mean, Jesus exhibited and modeled patience. For consider him, we're told in Hebrews 12, 3, him being Christ, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and you won't lose heart because you haven't resisted to the point of blood yet, have you? See how patient he was? Even when his own creation was, 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 was mocking him and bearing false witness against him and, 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 and scourging him and nailing him to a cross, patience. And patience is tough, isn't it? I mean, for me, patience is hard. But it is something that is an attribute of those who are to follow the Lord. And, and so he, Paul goes a little further here in verse 13, and he, he defines patience a little further. He spends a little time on this because of that, I think. Uh, and both of these parts there in verse 13 are related to patience when it comes to dealing with people, okay? He says, bearing with one another. That's the first one. You see that in verse 13 there? That's the idea of holding oneself erect under a burden that's imposed by others. You're coming alongside somebody else uh, and bearing with them in their, their situation. I think of the way that Jesus dealt with, with Peter, right? Peter was a guy who was always, I mean, getting into some kind of trouble, it seems like, right? Everything he said almost, it seems like it was wrong for a while there, right? But Jesus, look at how he dealt with him. He dealt with him so patiently and, and taught him and helped him to see the correct way. It's also as the aspect of, it's not just patience. I mean, you think about how that plays out in a church environment for a second. How we are to come alongside one another and bear with one another. How, how do we help each other in the body patiently? The second one he lists there, bearing with one another and, verse 13, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So it's not just a mere, uh, pa almost passive thing of bearing with and coming alongside one another, but there's action involved, forgiveness. That's a big part of patience. Forgive who? What does it say? Look at it. It says, whoever has a complaint against anyone. That's pretty uh, comprehensive, wouldn't you say? The Greek construct there is the third glass conditional, which means it's likely to occur. There's going to be times when somebody hurts your feelings, somebody comes across in a bad way to you, somebody sins against you, right? And then you're, the call here is, if you have a complaint against that person, right, deal with them in a forgiving way. And the idea here really shows us that forgiveness, which by the way is not the normal word for forgive, it's the idea of gracing, um, it's not an emotion. It's not, well, yeah, I don't feel like forgiving them. You ever felt like, you know what I mean? I don't feel like forgiving somebody. They've done this to me. It's a decision. It's an act of the will. You know, I, I, all through ministry, I'm telling you, 
people out here all the time from people as we're trying to help people work through these kind of situations. They say, but pastor, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know how much that hurt. And there's a real neat thing to help you when you feel like that. You ever felt like that? We've all felt like that, right? Here's, here's, here's your little uh, test that'll help you through this, okay? Lift up your hands. I'm not talking in a charismatic way. If I see you doing that, we're in trouble. Now, lift up your hands, right? Okay? Look at them. Look at your hands. Are you looking at your hands? Do you see any nail scars there? Somebody tell me. Do you? One or two, you might have them, but probably not, okay? No nail scars there, okay? All right? Ask the person next to you. Look at your head. Do you see, like, thorns marks, scars from having a crown of thorns on your head? No, Right? What's the point? The point is this, pastor, I've been mistreated, but let me tell you something. You have not been mistreated and I have not been mistreated to the level that Christ was mistreated. He had nothing coming against him. Even at our best, some of the, some of the problem is us usually, right? The way we respond or say something or didn't think through it properly. He did everything absolutely right the whole way, yet he was the one nailed to the cross. He was the one with the crown of thorns pressed into his head, okay? And so the Christian is to forgive, that is, not to bring it up again, put it behind you, move forward. But the basis of that that Paul gives us through the Holy Spirit is this, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. We sang about it this morning, right? The wounds bear my name, right? I'm the one who caused those wounds. I'm the one who the, the wounds are paying for because I couldn't pay for it myself. He did that for me when he had no penalty to pay. So in the same way that the Lord forgave me, so also should I forgive you. Have you been forgiven much? Yeah. If you're in Christ, you've been forgiven much. How then can you not forgive somebody else? That was the attitude of Stephen and other believers. Remember Stephen, when he's getting stoned by the people for just preaching the gospel, he gazed intently into heaven. He sees Jesus there. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he fell asleep. He died. John Perkins was an African-American man who tells how he was beaten in a Mississippi jail. He was repeatedly kicked and stomped at stomped on as he lay in a fetal position for protection. The beating went on and on as he writhed in a pool of his own blood while drunk officers took turns, beating with their feet and blackjacks. One point, an officer took an unloaded pistol, which he didn't know was unloaded, put it to Perkins' head and pulls the trigger. There's the emotional stress of something like that too. Another bigger man beat him until he was unconscious. And as the night wore on, it just got worse and worse. And during one conscious period, one officer pushed a fork down his throat. I mean, this is nasty stuff, right? Barbarous torture. And, and I tell you what, if this stuff happened to you or I, would you say you have a great reason to hate somebody? This is what happened, as John Perkins tells it in his own words, and I quote, So the Spirit of God worked on me as I lay in that bed. An image formed in my mind, the image of the cross, Christ on the cross. It blotted out everything else in my mind. This Jesus knew what I was suffering. He understood and he cared because he had experienced it all himself. This Jesus, the one who had brought good news directly from God in heaven, had lived what he had preached. Yet he was arrested 
and falsely accused. Like me, he went through an unjust trial. He faced a lynch mob and got beaten. But even more than that, he was nailed to rough wooden planks and killed, killed like a common criminal. At the crucial moment, it seemed to Jesus that even God himself had deserted him. The suffering was so great, he cried out in agony. He was dying. But when he looked at that mob who had lynched him, he did not hate them. He loved them. He forgave them. And he prayed for God to forgive them. Father, forgive these people, for they do not know what they're doing. Jesus' enemies hated, but Jesus forgave. And I couldn't get away from that. It's a profound, mysterious truth. Jesus' concept of love overpowering hate. I may not see, he writes, it's victory in my lifetime, but I know it's true. I know it's true because it happened to me. On that bed full of bruises and stitches, God made it true in me. He washed my hatred away and replaced it with a love for the white man in rural Mississippi. What Perkins was doing there is he was doing a, showing an understanding of Colossians 3.13 just as the Lord forgave, so also should you, right? So let's ask God to help us to add the robe of forgiveness to our wardrobe and to remove every barrier that keeps us from being 100% useful to him by being a forgiving people, right? Number six, beyond all this, he says, verse 14, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And beyond all what he's doing there, he's kind of like the belt that's holding the Christian wardrobe together. You put on love and love's what holds it all together. Without love, everything else is futile. Everything. It's Colossians 13, right? One through three. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have a gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I delivered my body up to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Put on love. Number seven, peace, verse 15. Look at verse 15. It says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. I love one fellow's definition of, the, of peace. He said, peace is the brief moment in history when people stand reloading. <laughs> you know, there's nothing really shooting right now. There's three components to peace. There's the idea of redemption. That's what we have at Salvation, Romans 5.1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the idea of rest and security, right? That's the idea of peace in, in, in the middle of the storm. Uh, Philippians 4.7, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus when you're going through these anxious times. It's kind of like, uh, I, I grew up on the Gulf Coast, and we'd get hurricanes, which I found fascinating. But a fascinating fact about hurricanes is, is, is all the tumult, all that's happening in the middle of a hurricane, if you go down 25 feet in depth in the water, there's no effect. It's totally peaceful. And so what, what peace is, and the hurricane is down below. That's why all the fish aren't dead at the end of the thing, right? And it's the same way in Christ. We can have the storms raging about us and all these tribulations and trials, hardships, people issues, and all that kind of stuff. But we hide ourselves in the depths of who Christ is. We set our mind on those kind of things, right? And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. It's also the idea of relationship there. He mentions that here in verse 15. He says, in, see that little phrase, prepositional phrase, in one body? 
That's the relationship of peace. Seeking peace grants unity. Um, this is a really special peace. It's the peace of Christ. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself is our peace, right? I'll tell you what, some of the most dynamic, unpeaceful places on earth can be churches. Churches can be absolutely brutal. Terrible. Fights, grudges, things like that, right? Can I just tell you that's not the design, all right? The design is that each one of us individually does what's mentioned here in Colossians chapter 3, where we forgive. How do you hold a grudge if you're forgiving? Where you love, how do you, if you're loving somebody, how do you not have a peaceful relationship, right? If all the, if all, all the members of this church are doing the things listed just so far in our passage, in their own lives, you do not have any real opportunity for a, a less than peaceful situation in this body. Right? It's got to come from the outside at that point, not from the inside. That's tough. Why is it tough? Because we're human, because we don't do all these things perfectly, right? So we need to be reminded, we need to bear with one another, come alongside each other, and help each one of us to live in accordance with the things that Paul has instructed us here as part of our Christian wardrobe. And when it comes to this issue of peace, there's a couple of questions to really ask yourself as you're looking at any situation you may face to say, How's, how, is this going to help to maintain peace or, or, or promote peace in this environment? And one question is, is what I'm desiring consistent with the fact that God and I are on the same side? In other words, am I doing things consistently with his character? If so, I'll have peace. You say, you mean it's going to be easy? No. You mean I won't have tribulation? No. But I'll have peace in the middle of it all, right? Because I'm doing it that way. Take, for example, an issue like church discipline. Church discipline's a hard thing, right? I mean, it's really hard because none of us are perfect and all that kind of stuff. But I'm going to be honest with you, right? We, there are things that people in, in, under the banner of peace said, we're not going to deal with these corporate sins or sins in in lives of one another that are dramatic and out there, right? And we're not going to do that because we want to maintain the peace. Well, that's not the kind of peace I'm talking about here because that doesn't answer that question correctly. You have to deal with those things because you love them and you care that they don't stay in that situation. So is what I'm desiring consistent with the fact that God and I are on the same side? Number two, Will it leave me with a deep abiding peace in my heart? I mean, is what I'm doing kind of trying to twist a knife on somebody or say something just to kind of get something back, you know, get my pound of flesh? Or is it something that is really based in true biblical peace? Eric Barker was a missionary from Great Britain who had spent over 50 years in Portugal preaching the gospel, often under really adverse situations. During World War II, the situation became so bad that they had to be evacuated out of the mission field. Having some details, and he was kind of the last guy to go out uh, that was a missionary, he, he sent his wife and eight children on a, on a ship to England. His sister was also down there in the field, sent her and her three children back as well while he stayed back to sew up some loose ends. 
the Sunday after they had all left, he got up in the pulpit and uh, he, he told the congregation, he says, I've just received word that my family has arrived safely home. And then he went around with the order of business of the day and preached a sermon and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't until a little later that the church found out what he meant when he said that. It seems that that ship had been heading back to England and a, a t- German torpedo had hit it, sunk it, and every one of them died. But he was absolutely true in what he said. Because he looked, he said, you know what? My wife's safely home. My children are safely home. My sister's safely home. And he had enough peace in the situation to go ahead and give glory to God and go about ministering to one another. That's peace, folks. That's what it looks like. Eric Barker had the peace of Christ and a peace that's unexplainable to the lost. Are you a person who is a peacemaker? If not, it's time to put that on. Don't under, undercut everything. Try to come alongside and help. Look at the end of that verse. Thankfulness is another part of the Christian wardrobe. Not grudgingly, but being, you're not doing this, well, I got to do this because, you know, Pastor Dave said it, the Bible says it, blah, 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 right? No, no, you do it and be thankful. You do it out of a heart of gratitude. And this is the key to everything because the hardest things you may face, if you can look at and the things to be thankful for, all those things become so much easier to face. They really do. I love the illustration of Matthew Henry. He was robbed one time. You remember him, the commentator Matthew Henry? Uh, he was robbed, and he, he sat down, and he wrote down some things to be thankful for after he was robbed. He said, let me th- be thankful first, because I've never been robbed before. How great is that? I've never been robbed. I've just first time. This guy's got a perspective, doesn't he? Number two, let me be thankful because he took my purse, but not my life. Could have been a lot worse, couldn't it? Number three, let me be thankful because although he took everything I possessed, it wasn't much. I like that one. And this is a beautiful one. Number four, let me be thankful because it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. It could very well have been me on the other side of that is his point. Always the Christian wardrobe should contain this attitude of gratitude. Now look at what Paul does next. He sums up that Christian wardrobe in a nutshell. Look at verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom and teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And these are the fundamentals, folks. This is kind of like the golden rule of Colossians, all right? He says, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. The word of Christ is not just the words of Christ and the red letters of your Bible, but it is, it is the whole of Scripture that he gave as an authority. And this is a key component of what, as Paul writes to this church, to, to battle the false teaching, to go back again to the word of God, the authoritative truth of God versus the philosophies of men. He says, let it dwell, which means <clears throat> let it live, let it be at home in you, let it reside in you. Now ask yourself a question, okay? How do I let the word of God dwell in me? Right off the bat, you're going to think, number one, you should be, I need to read it, right? Right off the bat, I need to be in the word of God. I need to be a man or woman 
of the word. That means I have time set apart in my schedule, in my life, where I'm going to actually read, and not just read like jackets off the list, but read thoughtfully the scriptures, okay? And meditate on the word of God. Study it. Even memorize it, right? And practically speaking here, folks, there are no shortcuts to this. It takes time and effort to get into the Word of God. And you just got to say, that's where, I'm, that's where I'm starting, okay? I have to do that because I've, I'm supposed to let the Word of Christ dwell richly in me. He says, in you, and the you there has an individual aspect personally and a collective aspect, plural, church, right? Let the Word of Christ dwell in the church body here, right? As individuals do that, the body takes care of itself. As leaders do that, the body takes care of it. Everything is, is filtered through. What does the word have to say about this? In other words, you know, how do, I'm going to teach the word, right? It says teaching and admonishing. I'm supposed to, that means I'm supposed to rightly divide it. it. It means we're to sing the word. He listed here, right? Psalms, that's Old Testament songs. Hymns, that's songs of praise. Spiritual songs, that's a more general term for songs that have spiritual truths to them. We're to sing with a certain attitude, right? Look at it, with thankfulness in your heart to God. What a difference it makes in our worship, uh, musical worship, when we do it from the heart instead of just like there's four songs, okay? Check, check, we're almost there, check, sermon, check, you know, <laughs> offering check, we're, you know, from the heart, isn't that different? So you're, you're, you're dwelling on uh, scriptural, these all, all should be and have been scriptural truths, Right? There should never be anything on the screen here that cannot be backed up by Scripture. All right? And, and as you look at that, as you think through it, and sometimes there are just straight quotes out of Scripture, right? Dwell upon that even as you sing it with thankfulness in your heart. How can you sing about the grace of God, the blood of Christ, these things we sing about today without just your heart being overwhelmed if you're processing it, if you're doing it with thankfulness? That changes the musical part of worship as well, doesn't it? It changes the, 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 this part of worship as well. Because from the heart, we're starting to think these truths and take them to heart. Same idea is found in Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 20, where Paul is describing the spirit-filled life, the spirit-controlled life. And he says this there, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled or controlled with the spirit. Speaking to one another, here we go, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord always, here we go, giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. You see, the word-filled Christian is the same as a spirit-filled Christian, in a sense. You're controlled by truth, controlled by who God is. His mind is set on the things above, dwelling on the word, which means he is Walking by the Spirit, which is what Spirit-filled means, contrary to much that you might run into in the world out there. Then what Paul does here is he wraps it up in a nice, neat package. And in case somebody wants to take the list that Paul gives and makes them exhaustive, a checklist, right? That's what we're going to do, take a checklist. Now I've got to be thankful, check. You know, just take the bulletin home, put that on the board. That's all the things I have to do, and I'll know. That's my wardrobe. He, he goes and he goes farther than that. He says, by the way, I'm listing out some things here that are important, but this isn't everything. It's not exhaustive. And he wraps it up and he says this, look at it. He says, and whatever you do in word or deed, this is verse 17, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, just doesn't take long to unpack this, right? Whatever you do, whatever. This is not the valley girl, whatever. This is not that kind of whatever. This is whatever. Whatever, that's, that's 
all-inclusive, right? Anything and everything, whatever you do, in case you didn't get anything and everything in word, right? That has to do with your thoughts and your speech. Indeed, that's your actions. Do it all, circle the word all in your Bible, in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does he mean when he says in the name of the Lord Jesus? People have turned this into a formula. I mean, I've known people like this. It's just like when you hear them pray, it's just in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we ask them in the name, in the name, name, name. They, they do this kind of thing with it. That's not what it's talking about here. Name in a biblical sense entails the idea of identification with him, right? It entails who he is. It represents his entirety, the name of the Lord. That's why the Jews wouldn't even want to write it down or say it. They wouldn't speak it. When they write it down, they'd write one letter, wash the pen, wash themselves, and write down another one because it's so holy because they looked at the name as being God, it was, it was him. It represented him entirely. And it, it also holds the idea of authority, the name of the Lord Jesus. He is God and we are his. So we're under his authority and we live in accordance with his will. And that's not all. We're to do all that. Again, what does he say there? With an attitude of thanksgiving, giving thanks. By the way, if you add this component of thanksgiving to your life, it really will fight the battle against legalism well. It'll help you there dramatically. And again, I don't don't really have to point it out to you. There's just a large number of references to thanksgiving here in Colossians. This is the fifth time we've seen it in the book already. He keeps talking about that. It's the third time we've seen it in three verses. You think Paul might be trying to make a point? Yeah. Do unto, do unto everything unto the Lord with thanksgiving. You see, as Christians, folks, we are to dress the part. And that includes getting rid of some aspects of our lives that are not in keeping with who we are in Christ. And it includes putting on the Christian wardrobe, which glorifies God. And I hope you see the importance of this, okay? As we live our lives before a watching world, we're to show through the power of the Holy Spirit the work that Christ does in our lives. We're to exhibit that as we live out there. If people were to get their idea of who God is and what his character is about by watching your life for a week or a month, I mean, what kind of picture of God would they end up with? Does your walk honor God? Does does my walk honor God? Does my mouth honor God? Does my work ethic honor God? Does my checkbook honor God? The things I dwell on, does that honor God? You'll not do this perfectly this side of heaven. And I don't want you to set that as your only goal, all right? But know this. We have a great opportunity to be a living illustration of the power of the transformation of the gospel of Jesus Christ before a watching world that needs so desperately to know it's true. And when we're so selfish that we refuse to put off things that we should and refuse to put on things that we could, we're harming the work of the gospel as it can be performed through our lives. We need to live a life so that others can see Jesus in this world. He is powerful, so show them your changed life. He is holy, so show them a holy, sanctified, set-apart life. And he is faithful, so show them a consistent life, depending on God, even when you fail, showing them how that all looks when you fail. Show them Christ. 
Jerome K. Jerome wrote a story, a little short story called The Passing of the Third Floor Back. And it was a story of a poor, poor working class lodging house full of people who were needy and seedy. And uh, one of them was this little poor little servant girl, and, and she was, at the point in her life, just even though at a young age, she was willing to sell herself for a trinket, anything she could get. One day, a, a new lodger came into the boarding house, and at once he seemed so terribly different from everybody else. He showed kindness towards people. He showed gentleness. When things were going ways they shouldn't, he tried to help people and come alongside people and, and help them to understand the right things. He told them about the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he had done. The time came for him to leave and move along on the road and it was hard for this little servant girl because she'd really grown attached to him. He was the only person who had ever showed her any kindness, any compassion. As she watched him take his little bit of luggage to the front door, he turned to her, he smiled at her, gave her a little pat on the head and said goodbye. And she looked up at him and she said, please just answer a question for me. Are you him? Are you the Christ? I mean, you, I see the things you've talked about that he's like in you. Are you really him? I tell you what, folks, we should be clothed, so clothed in Jesus Christ that when people look at us, they see a semblance of who he is. As we live our life in our workplace, in our families, in our homes, uh, in our neighborhoods, they ought to see Christ. They ought to see it in our failures, right? Because we're going to fail, right? I don't say that as like, oh, we're just going to fail. Might as well fail. I don't mean it like that. We're going to fail. How do you deal with that failure? How do you seek forgiveness when you need to? How do you uh, instruct people your lessons learned, or do you just try to hide them and pretend like, ah, I don't have any problems, I don't have any issues? We need to show each other Christ. In Colossians 3, verses 5 through 17 or an awesome starting point to really see how our lives should be. And as we'll see as we continue through this book, what happens is, is we are impacted by the theology of chapters 1 and 2. The first place that we're impacted is on ourselves with its put-offs and put-ons, okay? And it's like ripples in a, a still pond, right? And then it's going to go out from there to your close, as they see Christ in you, the rest of your family and, and the people around you, your spouse, your children, the people you work with, the world around you, your neighborhood, they're going to be impacted by seeing Christ in you and seeing this theology impact your life. So often we grab the put-offs and put-ons and we say, let's go apply this to sister so-and-so our brother, so-and-so, when we need to start with ourselves so that we'll be able to help them, right? Dress the part. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word. There's so much in these verses that we could have spent a lot more time on, Father, but uh, help us to, to grasp these truths in such a way that we, they are increasing ever in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.